0: It's always exciting to, um, to hear about stories of opportunities of sharing the gospel, and I've heard several, I think three in the last two weeks, and I've just been so encouraged by your willingness to share the gospel, your willingness to take opportunities to share the gospel, and I want to encourage you. As Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation, to everyone who believes. Uh, And so continue sharing the story, continue taking opportunities, because you know the power lies not in yourself, but in God who gives growth, God who changes lives. So keep sharing the gospel, and we'll keep sharing those stories of God's goodness as he works among us. Let me pray uh, before we look at our text this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 1 through 9. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come now to the reading and preaching of your word, we pray that you would accompany it with the power of your spirit, um, that I would hide behind your word, that um, I would simply be a servant pointing us to Christ Jesus. We pray that you would work in the midst of us. Give us ears to hear. Give us attentiveness. Help us to to be able to, to concentrate and focus and be actively engaged in Uh, the preaching of your word, that we would hear with faith and believe all that you have to say to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. A little bit of uh, competition on a sports team or even in an organization can be a, a good thing. So there's always excitement when the backup quarterback gets an opportunity to get into the game for the first time and he shines, he makes all the right plays, and a new star is born. Uh, When I wrestled in high school, our practices were filled with competition against one another, against those who were on the team. Uh, Those who were in the same weight class competed against each other because we wanted the starting role on the team. But even beyond that, I wanted to beat the guys who were a weight class or two ahead of me just because competition. We wanted to beat each other. We wanted to be the best. We pushed each other. We challenged each other. We made each other better. And so we competed with one another. But if a particular team member begins to think he's the most important player on a team, competition could become a problem. Imagine, for instance, if a a backup quarterback who wanted to start so much that he began to want the starting quarterback to fail or a backup striker. He wanted the starter to get injured or to not do so well, to not score any goals. Uh, And so in his jealousy, he began undermining the starter so that he could get a chance. Well, then it becomes more about the individual than it becomes about the team. Getting the starting role becomes more important than the ultimate Goal is your team winning. And competition within the ranks of the team has taken priority over competing together against other teams. That's the real goal. But the same sort of thing can happen in organizations and even in churches, even among those of us who call ourselves Christians. I've seen it before, and you probably have too. If we're not careful in our service to one another, we could begin to see each other as competitors rather than as cooperatives, rather than teammates. Or we could even begin to see other churches as competitors rather than teammates. There are only so many people in Roseville, right? We've got to get them in our church. We can't let them go to Exchange Church or Rollsville Baptist Church. We need to get them here. But the Spirit gives us a different view of things. Uh, Remember, that's what we saw last week. We who are in Christ have the mind of Christ because we have been indwelt with His Spirit. And therefore, we see things differently. We discern things according to the Spirit, no longer with the fleshly mind, the worldly mind, the natural mind, but with the spiritual mind. In our passage today, Paul gives... An outline to the Corinthian believers about how they should think about their own life together, their service among one another, and their leaders as well. How to view their leaders within the church. How they ought to be thinking about ministry together. They shouldn't be competing with one another. They should be cooperating with one another. But though they were filled with the Spirit, they were still thinking in merely human ways. Follow along As I read our text, verses 1 through 9 of chapter 3, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, merely infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. The backup striker, who is team oriented rather than self oriented, yearns for the success of the starter. He still wants to beat him in practice, but when it's game time, he's cheering on his team as enthusiastically as anyone else. And this is how it should be for us who are in the church. When we see our brothers and sisters or sister churches succeeding and bearing fruit for the gospel, we should be thrilled, we should be cheering for them. For our longing is not to see our own kingdom built, but the kingdom of God built and expanded. God exalted. We want to see Christ exalted. We want to see people brought into the family and kingdom of God. To walk through this passage together, I just want you to notice two main sections. First, in verses 1 through 4, we see the competitive spirit or mindset of the Corinthian Christians. And second, in verses 5 through 9, we see the apostles cooperative spirit, Paul's cooperative spirit. How how the Corinthians should view Ministry among the body. So it's another contrast, like it was last week. This is the competitive spirit versus the cooperative spirit. So, first, look at the competitive spirit of the Corinthians. Paul has been saying, We do speak a sort of wisdom, but it's only among those who are mature those who are spiritual and not merely natural. But then he continues, that's not who you are. I couldn't address you as mature Christians, as spiritual Christians, because you're still acting worldly. And he points back to what he has already identified as their problem. What was their problem? It was divisiveness, but a particular divisiveness uh, early, in the, early in this book. Later on in the letter, he talks about other forms of divisiveness. But here he's addressing this Desire to attach themselves to a leader who has prominence, a leader who has prestige. In the Corinthian culture, if you attached yourself to a certain leader, then you got to ride their coattails. You got a little bit of prestige as well. And this is what the believers in Corinth were doing. They were attaching themselves to the leaders they admired most, not because of what they had gained spiritually but because of the prestige they could get from it. You're still worldly, Paul says. And what's the evidence? Verse 3. There is jealousy and quarreling among you. You're acting like merely natural people, not those of the Spirit. Aren't you just acting worldly like those around you in the culture? Now, if, you, if you've been considering all that we've talked about, you, in your mind, you might be thinking, well, well, there's a contradiction here. How can those who are filled with the Spirit, how can those believers who have been indwelt by the Spirit be called merely natural? It doesn't seem to, to, to follow. Well, scholar Anthony Thistleton helps us here. A really keen insight. He says, Since the Corinthians are self-contradictory, Paul can describe them only in self-contradictory language, as if they did not possess the Spirit at all. So the Corinthian believers are living contradictions in a sort of way. They, they say they're spiritual, but they're not exemplifying what it means to be spiritual. They aren't displaying the fruit of the Spirit in how they interact with one another. They're, they are Com- uh, competing with one another and their competition is driven by their division. Their division springs from their selfish ambition. So it's their selfish pride which is leading to division which leads to competition among brothers and sisters. Those who are in the same family. Those who are in the same body. And this reveals two things about the Corinthian believers. It reveals first their immaturity. Immaturity and it reveals their worldliness. Did you notice what Paul calls them here in these verses? He calls them babies. (laughs) You're babies in Christ. I think Paul doesn't get a lot of credit for how funny he is. He's hilarious at times. He uses a touch of irony here to get a point across to the Corinthians. These, these Christians in Corinth were zealous about showing how spiritual they were and how mature they were. And Paul says, you are babies. Not even close to being mature. So maybe you've had experience feeding babies. What do you do? First, they need to learn to latch on to drink the milk, and then they love it, don't they? Feed a baby a bottle of milk, and it's like they are in heaven. They call it a milk coma, right? They're just sitting there, eyes glazed over. It's so good. They feel so good. But then you can't continue doing that. As the baby grows down the road several months, six months later, what do you do? Uh, you, You begin helping them to try some new things. You begin uh, getting, weaning them off of the bottle and giving them a little bit of solid food. But first you start with some pureed veggies. It's always so nasty doing that, but they they love that sometimes too. Or some rice or cereal, and then some fruit. And then after some more time, when they start getting their teeth, they can add some more hearty foods to their diet. And the best of all is when they can finally eat some meat, get some real solid meat. But what if you have a teenager who everything else seems absolutely normal, but the only thing they eat is by drinking milk from a bottle? That would be something seriously wrong, right? Seriously wrong. They would surely be mal- n- malnourished. They would probably have a lot of social problems. <laughs> uh, but it, it shows you they ha- something's wrong. They haven't matured as they should have at this, at this stage in their life. They haven't matured properly. And this is exactly what Paul is saying about the Corinthians. You, ha- you haven't matured. You're still on milk. You're still acting just like babies. What's going on? You should have grown. You should have matured. What has stunted your growth? Now, Paul uses this metaphor of milk and meat, but he doesn't tell us what it is. He doesn't explain his metaphor for us. Uh, Similarly, the the author of Hebrews says this to his readers in Hebrews 5, 12 to 14. Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk not solid food. And he goes on, Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish between good and evil. So what's the difference between milk and meat? Well, both are necessary in their own time. Both give nourishment. Both have similar contents of protein and fats. Uh, Perhaps the main difference we should see here is not so much with the the content, but with the form. So it's almost as if milk is is pre-digest for you. Milk takes very little effort for your body to digest, but meat must be chewed. And you're supposed to chew meat at least 30 times for every bite, right? So that you're digesting it. And then your stomach takes over digesting further still. It takes a lot of work to digest meat. So what I think Paul has in mind here is a fuller understanding of the gospel and all that God has freely given us in Christ, a greater understanding of the full counsel of the Word of God, not simply the elementary teachings of Scripture in the gospel, an understanding of how to further walk out what it means to be children of God, what it means to be alive in Christ, what it means to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It means a further understanding Explanation and understanding of how being saved empowers us and enables us to live more and more for the glory of God. So it includes both understanding and knowledge, but it also includes how we live out the truths of Scripture. Both, of, both the Hebrews passage and this Corinthians passage are connected to discernment. Being able to discern all things spiritually rather than simply naturally. The problem with the Corinthians wasn't simply they didn't understand as much as they should, though that was part of it, but it was also that they weren't walking in love with one another. So a part of your maturity in Christ is not simply how much you know or understand, but how you live in relation to other brothers and sisters in Christ. How what you know affects how you live. They weren't walking out the implications of their new status in Christ. So I think we need to pause here and ask ourselves... Some questions. Are you still a mere baby in Christ? Are you still an infant in Christ? Are you still eating just milk? Have you grown so that you can chew the meat of the Word? Maybe you've been content to kind of coast through on some things, to live passively. And the passage of time in your Christian life doesn't necessarily mean maturity in Christ. What are you doing to grow in your understanding? What are you doing to grow in in your life of how you live in response to the Word of God? What are you doing to grow in love for your brothers and sisters? What initiatives are you taking to grow in Christ? And now notice too where Paul lays the responsibility for this. This is very interesting. He doesn't ultimately put the, the responsibility for this on himself or on the other leaders who were in Corinth. Rather, it seems he puts the responsibility back on the shoulders of the Corinthians. Now certainly, leaders and teachers have a responsibility to feed the flock, but Paul noticed they weren't able to handle the meat of the word and so that he had to adjust what he gave them and how he gave it to them, milk. He put the responsibility back on them. They, they should have been mature by now. It's clear they hadn't taken the initiative they should have in order to grow. But we must aspire for more than this. We must aspire for growth, for maturity in Christ. To grow in understanding, in love for God and, and one another. So how do we do this? How do we strive for greater, ever-increasing maturity in Christ? Well, first... I'll bring you back to something really simple. We must devote ourselves to the ordinary means of God's grace. The preaching of His Word. Hearing with faith. The reading of His Word. So that means gathering together weekly. Making it a commitment to be with the people of God for the preaching of God's Word. The reading of God's Word. The prayers together. The fellowship among the membership. And this is not simply a passive thing that we're doing here. I think often we can get into the habit of being passive when we gather together for church but what remember back when you were in college or guys who are in um in school now you take the eogs what if you were a college student and you had an exam coming up and you knew a lot of your grade depended on that exam well you'd be studying all throughout you would be studying the content of the exam and then what you wouldn't just cram the night before, but then what would you do perhaps the night before or, or early the next morning before the, the exam? You would kind of review what you'll, be, uh, what you'll be tested on, you'll think about those things, you'll get plenty of sleep the night before so you are alert and ready to, uh, to maximize your potential to do well. You'll will, you will position yourself in a way to do the absolute best you could. And I think we should see the ordinary means of grace in this way. Are we positioning ourselves on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock to receive as much as we can of God's Word in the Gospel? So drink your coffee. Get some caffeine. Get plenty of sleep. Review the Scriptures that we're going to be reading the night before and in the morning. Prepare yourselves To receive from the Word of God. It is not a passive thing. It must be an active event. But further, reading together. Studying together. Not simply milky books, but meaty heavy books, not simply theology, certainly theology and deep studies in the scripture, but also what are the implications? How can we work out the implications of how we are living together? So pursuing the things of Christ together, not only in our understanding, but in how we live our lives, taking initiative in one another's lives. Hey friend, would you please uh, commit to reading this book with me? Maybe every every few, few weeks and we'll just connect Occasionally, as we study this together, as we try to sharpen one another, as we try to dig deeper, as we try to grow in maturity in Christ, it's going to have to start with a desire to, to grow in Christ. Jesus gives us another agricultural metaphor in John 15 where he says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So ultimately, ultimately we derive our strength and our health and our growth, our fruitfulness as we remain in Christ, as we abide in Christ. So ultimately, as we're pursuing these other things, as we're pursuing the ordinary means of grace being active in receiving them as we are pursuing studying together and challenging one another, we must recognize that ultimately our growth and health will come only as we abide in Christ. And this is... Also something Christ died to give us. Our sanctification. It is something Christ has purchased for us by his death and resurrection. He died on the cross to justify us by his blood. So that's the one-time declaration where God looks upon you, the believer, and says, you are now righteous in my sight. Not because of anything that you have done, but because Christ lived the life you should have lived and died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead. He also died on the cross and rose again to make us progressively more like Him. And He is doing it by His Spirit. By faith, we have been united to Christ. There is a connection there, a spiritual union we have been given all the riches of salvation in Christ. And so as we remain in Him by faith, receiving His word, receiving the ordinary means of grace, trusting in Him, as we remain in Him, we are fed and we grow into the fullness and maturity of Christ. The Corinthian believers were not doing this. They were not remaining in Christ. They were not pursuing Christ together. It is only through Christ Feeding on Christ that we will grow. And the Corinthians weren't doing this and it led them to live and to think just like unbelievers, like natural people. It caused them even to view their church in terms of competition rather than cooperation. But notice Paul's By contrast, notice Paul's cooperative spirit in the second half of our passage. This is how they should have viewed their leaders and their service to one another. Verses 5 through 10. Competition comes from division, but cooperation comes from unity. Did you notice the different aspects of unity that Paul lists there in verses 5 through 10? Paul's cooperation came first from the unity he knew he had with other leaders. Notice They were united in their identity or their status. Who are they? Only servants. They are only servants of the Lord. They are only servants who have been given tasks from the Lord. In Paul's view, the Corinthians were thinking too highly of their leaders as if their role was more important than the roles of the other leaders. And this trickled down to the individual believers as well. They began to think too highly of themselves Paul addresses this in more detail at the end of this chapter. But think about our tendency to think one job in the church is more important than all the others. And usually, this tendency is more specific. It's not just that one job is more important, it's that my job is more important than the other jobs. It's inevitable, it seems like, in a church. And don't think that it won't ever happen to you. Don't think that you won't won't ever be led into or drawn away into this tendency. You'll start to become frustrated with others in the church. What you perceive as their lack of commitment or their lack of sacrifice. You won't be able to understand why others won't be a part of, especially the ministry that you're a part of and that you are involved in. Or at least they don't recognize the value of what you provide. And the thought may even begin to float into your mind. If everyone else would just have the same commitment to this that I had, then our church would really become great. And if that's the case, if that begins to come into our minds, we would have to ask the question, and I have to ask myself this question sometimes, who is it that you are serving? Why are you serving? What are you serving for? You want the praise of people and recognition from mere humans? Well, you are important to us as a member of God's church. We need you. Each person has a task that the Lord has assigned him. The work must be done. But yet, if you're looking for rewards in the here and now, then we ought to raise our sights a little higher than that, a lot higher than that. For this, Paul says in verse 8, each one will be rewarded according to their own labor from the Lord. What better reward could you ask for than for your Lord, for your Master, for your God, to one day reward you for your labor? Those who receive accolades here and now, Jesus says, surely you already have your reward. There is both humility here and there's exaltation. The humility is we are simply servants of the Lord. He says we are nothing. Simply servants. We aren't anything. And yet the Lord himself will reward each one's labor as it it is done in faith for the glory of God. Yearn for this reward. Yearn for a well done from your father who is in heaven. Paul and the other leaders are unified in their status, their identity. Merely servants in the Lord longing for the reward from their master. But they're also unified in their purpose. Verse 8 again. The one who plants and the one who waters. They both have one purpose. What is that purpose? They're looking for growth in Christ. They're looking for maturity in Christ. They want to get fruit from the field. They want to make progress in constructing the building. They're not competing. They're not opponents. They're teammates. co-workers in God's service for the same purpose. And this unity makes for cooperation. But notice in the third place, they're unified by faith. So what gives them unity for cooperation is their understanding of who they are. It's their unity and purpose. And it, third, is it, their unity in the faith. They have their tasks. We all have our tasks which have been given us from the Lord, spiritual gifts for the building up of his body. But where is our faith? Where is our confidence? Where was Paul's confidence? Verses 6 and 7. I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. In the midst of God's people planting and watering and working and serving for the good of his church, God is the prime mover, He is the prime effector. Paul and Apollos were united in their faith in God, that he is the one who grows his people. So no amount of energy or sacrifice or service on our part, no amount of strategy or planning or technique is anything unless God sovereignly and graciously gives us growth. Thistleton again says, Since all growth comes from God, what looks like self-constructed religion or faith could be sterile. And he goes on to suggest we shouldn't expect growth at all if in a complexity of infrastructures and strategies we forget about God. It's just not going to happen without God. Let me pause for a moment and be clear about what we're talking about. All too often when we're thinking about growth, our minds go to one particular place, don't they? They go to size. Size. We're talking about size here, right? Growth. At our home, we have a growth chart where we measure our size. So we measure the height of our kids every year. We mark their size, and we even have a little mark for our dog, Violet, way down low, (laughs) to see how she's growing. And when a church is in a building project, you might see a, a cute sign outside that says, here we grow again. They're talking about size. We when, when someone's talking to you about your church, they might ask, are you growing? And generally, they mean, are you getting bigger? Are you growing in size? And someone might well say, well, growth is a sign of health. And I say, well, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. So Rachel and I, we don't have a mark for our height on the growth chart. Because if we grow, it's not going to be up, it's going to be out. And we don't want necessarily to do that. But we better still be growing intellectually and spiritually and emotionally in how we react and respond to others in our relationship. We better be growing, but it's not necessarily in size. So what kind of growth are we looking for then as a church? Well, we do want to grow numerically because we want to see people saved. We want to see people hear the gospel and believe it and trust in Jesus for their salvation. We do want that. But all too often, that is our exclusive focus to the point where we are, are happy to take members from other churches just so that we can simply feel good about ourselves that we're growing. Someone recently asked me then, how do you define se- success in the church? And so I wrote back a response through email, and I said, Here's what, here are the questions I'm asking to see it, how we're doing, if we are being successful, if we are growing. Are we growing in our appreciation for the gospel and our dependence upon him for his grace? Are we growing in our ability to serve one another in love? Are we growing in that? So it's not just the question, are we we serving like we always have? Are we growing in our ability to serve one another? Are we growing in our willingness to bear with one another and forgive one another? Are we growing in our understanding ourselves to be missionaries to those around us, wherever we go? Are we growing in these things? Are we growing in our commitment to the ordinary means of grace, to the preaching of His Word and the sacraments and prayer? In other words, are we growing as a church in our love for God's glory, our love for God's people, and our love for God's world? It's baked right there in our purpose statement. Are we growing in these things? And if we are growing in these things, if we we are growing in our love for God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ, if we are growing in our love for God's people in the church, and if we're growing in our love for God's world, expressing our love for them through the preaching of the gospel and through care for them, then we can be thankful that God is working in our midst to grow us. And we can let God worry about the growth, what he takes care of. If it was totally up to me or Jason or any other human leader, we would be in big trouble. I cannot make you grow. I cannot make you grow spiritually. I can't make you love the gospel more. I can't make you depend on Christ more. I can't make you forgive each other or bear with one another more. I and Jason and other leaders in your church, we are simply servants of the Lord, carrying out the particular tasks that He has given us. But your growth... Our growth is not totally up to me. It's not even partially up to me. It is totally up to God. Your growth rests in the hands of God, the great gardener of his people. And that is a huge relief. Since we know that God is the one who gives growth, we can rest in his sovereign goodness while we keep striving for faithfulness to do the tasks he has given us. Paul says to the Corinthian believers, you are God's field. You are God's building. You belong to God in Christ. Have you ever had a garden? There's a sense, it's, it's, it's weird, there's a sense of care and concern that you begin to have for your little garden. So when we lived in Gibsonville, there was a community garden right across the street from us. We could, could walk just a couple minutes over there. And we got a, a few little plots, little three-by-three three plots. And we'd go over and we'd get our hands dirty, turning the soil over, over, mixing in compost, getting things ready. And we would take our fingers and poke little holes down in the dirt so that we could drop a few little seeds in each one of them, and we, we put things just where we wanted them. We designed it just the way we wanted it. We'd put a couple row, rows of carrots, spinach, cucumbers, squash. And so we, we planted those seeds, and then we would come back occasionally and check on them, pruning back any deadness, making sure it was healthy, picking off little bugs that were, were dangerous to its health, and then we saw it produce fruit you know how much joy it gave us just to see some fruit from that work that we had put into it? And you should have seen how excited the kids were to see. Wow, look at all those cucumbers. Look at that squash. Look how big that squash is. It gave us joy because our little garden was growing and flourishing and producing fruit. And brothers and sisters, this is a picture of how God cares for and feels about us, His little garden. Can you imagine if we can care about little seeds and plants and have concern for our little garden? How much God must care for his people? How much God must care for you and your growth in Christ? And so he's working. He's tending this garden through his people. He carefully lifts a leaf into his hand to examine it. He removes those things which will harm you. He prunes back anything which is promoting deadness or disease. And it gives him great pleasure to see you grow and flourish and produce fruit. And this is God's will for us that we produce much fruit. Again, Jesus said in John 15, This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And this fruit will ultimately come only through resting and relying upon Christ as we strive together for maturity in him. For he died for us, He rose again for us. He indwelt you by his spirit, and he is coming again soon to perfect us for his glory. Let us pray together.